You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 114 of a Life Endurance Podcast. I am David. I am alive. I am not off the podcast. I am here. I am just very busy. I am here today with my co-host, Connor Johnen. Carlton cannot be here today. He was doing field school or running it. And then he got hit by a tornado and we haven't heard from him since. So hope the kid's okay. Also, we are here with uh, Vincent Batista, who is a Neanderthal extraordinaire expert person. A funny story about this, which we can get into, Vincent. I posted a thing about Neanderthals and I got a DM from somebody who was like, hey, actually the information is X, Y, or Z. And I was like, oh, Really? It turned out to be the man we're speaking to today. And I was like, oh, and then from that day on, we actually were really good Instagram friends. We sent each other memes, got a lot in common, love dogs. So we decided to get him on the show. And you are a student of Wolpoff because you got a PhD at the University of Michigan. And Wolpoff was a good friend of me and Connor's biological anthropology teacher. So welcome to the show, Vincent. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Yeah, I've been, you know, been a pretty big lurker on the Ethnocynology page. And one of my good friends, Jim, actually sent me your Instagram like long before I lurked and then like eventually lurked. And now we're now we send each other Sopranos memes. So. That's, I think, the majority of our relationship. And Cougine. Cougine, a <laughs> lot, lot of Cougine, yeah. Yeah, he's a good, he's a good dude. <laughs> Connor's a Cougine fan. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I want to clarify that Carlton is alive and he did text us and he did not directly get hit by the by, by the okay. uh, tornado. Uh, his town did. He did not fly. He did not strap him, himself to a, a pipe using his belt as seen in the movie Twister. It's not not something he did. So he's he's all right. He just doesn't have any cell service. So, Vincent, what really got you into and kind of got you interested in anthropology growing up, if you don't mind answering that. I think a big thing is like my dad is an immigrant from Italy. And so I think people who are from immigrant families are kind of positioned in this weird spot where they're almost primed to do cultural anthropology from the minute they're born. It's wild because like you live in, you know, you have a, a, a foot in each room, so to speak, and you're on the threshold between being like American and being something else. And so like, that was interesting, but also we were very privileged to be able to go back to Italy a bunch when I was a kid and the archeology span there is everywhere. Like you can't yeah. swing a dead cat without finding stuff. Like for example, my father, when he was a kid was like digging in the backyard and he found a sword, literally just found a sword in the backyard. And like he and one of his buddies who like his buddy owned like a goat. My dad told me that like he was like riding on this goat, like pretending to joust with this sword as kid. Like it's he's a kid. He had no archaeological training or anything. He was just digging in the yard and found a sword and stuff like that happens all the time. But like going there, seeing like Greek ruins. This is from Southern Italy, a huge Greek presence there uh, from Magna Grecia. Um, all the Roman stuff, a lot of Samnite sites, things like that. So I've always kind of just been interested in like human past. And also human variation in terms of what that means biologically and culturally. When I was an undergrad, I wanted to do psychology and took, I had to take an Anthro 101 course. And I was just completely fascinated by it. I wasn't doing too well academically. And two of these Anthro professors kind of just took me under their wing. One was Dan Adler, 
who's an archaeologist, works in Armenia, does a lot of Pleistocene stuff. And the other guy's Gidon Hartman, who is a stable isotope specialist. I don't, I don't know if he did it on purpose, but I was like really struggling. And he like took a shine to me and let me work in his lab and cut up bones and drill teeth. One of the things we were working on was with gazelle teeth from a mood cave in Israel. And a mood is Israel. In Israel is really interesting because it has Neanderthal occupational horizons sandwiched between what people might call modern human occupational horizons. They're basically moving in and out of this cave system. And the Neanderthals from down there are interesting because they don't look like Neanderthals from Western Europe. They're like probably a little bit taller. Their faces are a little bit different. Chances are, like what we know now from like paleogenomics, like these were probably admixed Neanderthals with way mm. more African ancestry than we would have expected. But anyway, so we were working on doing like paleoecology, looking at essentially where Neanderthals were hunting these gazelle and looking at oxygen isotopes in their teeth. And they got me super into science and. I was really into archaeology. I was going to be an archaeologist, do archaeology. I did a, you know, I was concerned about not being able to get my PhD because my grades were not up to snuff. I had like a, I think I graduated with like a below a 3.0 GPA. Like this is like very clearly a case of like undiagnosed ADHD kid, which is me. Yeah. Subsequently diagnosed, but like I was not good at school, but like I knew all my stuff, but like, you know, wasn't really performing. And then Gidon was like, yeah, you should just apply to a master's program in the UK. Like you're gonna have to probably take out student loans, whatever, but like you'll get a master's in like one or two years. You'll learn a lot. It'll be a good experience. So I did that and uh, I went to Durham. And the way that the ArcSci program was there at the time, I don't know if it still is around, but you essentially do like little rotations and do different projects. And I really, really like the ancient DNA stuff. And then yeah. it stuck. And then I became a geneticist. And now I do computational biology for a living. So it's been like a very meandering that but like after that i took a year off i worked at yale in the molecular biology department and wanted to get a little better in the lab so i was doing some CRISPR stuff and then uh, i got accepted to michigan and i was co-advised by milford who's like bones dude teeth dude statistics dude and uh abby bigham who you know at the time was a young pi she's a, a obviously a woman pi in genetics and like you know that was like really cool to me to see like person not too too much older than me doing really really cool science with like very clear like archaeologically and cultural anthropologically grounded research questions like saying we know people have been in the andes for this long we know people have survived in this hypoxic environment for this long like what is the signal that that leaves on the human genome and like that absolutely fascinated me so abby and milford were my advisors and my phd project was ultimately Half of it was statistical genetics, and the other half was uh, was skeletal biology. So now I'm done. Now I'm doing a, I guess a non traditional postdoc at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and I play with computers all day. It's pretty sweet. The kid's wicked smart. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> lots to unpack there, dude. You've done quite a lot. I want to. And Connor, you can dive in here too. But the beginning, you mentioned well, one that you grew up. Italian and grew up around a lot of Italians and like our, our very niche humor that we send in memes is like that kind of culture. But I find it really interesting. Like I grew up around so many Italians in New York and like my friends were like my babysitter only spoke Italian. So it's just like, I got really interested in of course, like Greek and Roman history. And then, you know, I'd never been to Italy then I went later on in my life, 
Yeah, just super interested in the different cultures in New York because there's like that and like my neighbors are literally from another country and it was super cool. The cooking was wild. And I think that made me want to be an anthropologist too. Like I'm just so interested. Yeah. And I think that's a common thing we see here. And what I was going to lead that into too is like your GPA in, in college. Like I think Connor and I had a very similar thing. Like we just got taken under a wing by a professor because we were, you know, yeah. And What's you know, the word, Connor? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my problem was like I discovered beer and like <laughs> and like partying, but also like so I'm from Connecticut, right? I was I was born in New Haven, raised in New Haven. My dad was a lab tech at Yale and a union organizer when I was born, and we lived in a three-family home, right? So like I grew up with my grandparents, and uh, my grandfather was a partisan, like very very hardcore left-wing. Like the probably the polar opposite of the stereotypical Italian American guy in the Northeast, right? Like the conservative Catholic sort of thing. For the audience, what's a partisan? Basically, like anti-fascist. Got it. They were socialists because you know, but that he was tended more towards anarcho-syndicalism, just more sort of part and parcel for Southern Italy. Like Southern Italy, more from is very rural, very agricultural. Socialism never really took hold down there. Anarchism did more. And there's a big misconception that anarchy and anarchism mean the same thing, which they don't. We can talk about it later. But so I grew up sure. in a house where, like, there was there was a, a an inborn sense of solidarity with people who were underrepresented. Like my grandfather taught me, my grandfather didn't speak English taught me about the Black Panthers. Like, hmm. and they were in New Haven. They were active when they moved to the states. Like, you know, and he was a a marksman. He was a, a very good shot. And like we used to harvest rabbits in the backyard and like eat them and like grow our own food and like seeing that like that was an important formative experience for me and like that was I think really critical in getting me invested in the outdoors so then like when I went to college at UConn all my time was spent outside like you know obviously partying and stuff whatever but northeast Connecticut is a really really good place to like learn about yourself and learn about the environment and I think kind of like hindsight's 2020 but like that was important as an archaeology undergrad Mm-hmm. like part of our curriculum was like the archaeology of New England, Southern New England. So like a lot of stuff in Rhode Island and Connecticut and like walking around and like seeing the landscape and understanding how historical forces of colonialism and things like that shaped the history of Southern New England for the time period we were working on. Like that was really, really important to me. And I think like I, I wouldn't have gotten that anywhere else. So like, it seems very different, like anti-fascist, you know, 1940s Italy, but colonialism in, you know, the 1600s in New England, they're really similar in a lot of ways. You have people coming in without permission and changing everything, changing life, these power dynamics. And I think also kind of having this almost Marxist ideology at a young age, I think that was also a, a reason for me to go to Michigan. I think that was a, you know, it's pretty strong in the archaeological curriculum there, and I think Having all these questions at a, a relatively early stage in my career, uh, it was a lot going on. And so, like, it was weird because, like, I wouldn't hand in my homework assignments from my history classes, but I would, like, read all the stuff I was assigned and then more and, like, go to the library and get lost in the library. And, like, wasn't doing well academically, but, like, I knew so much, but I was, like, super excited, which I like, couldn't do the work. And I think part of that is because, like, and also I think that might be why archaeology was so appealing to me is because, like, it was physical. 
And like that physicality is like really important for a lot of people. Like only in our society do we like demonize kids for not being able to sit in a chair for eight hours a day. You know what I mean? Like no other learning, no other like context of learning does that. And I don't know. And that's something that like, I don't know, it just really stuck with me. And I think it had an important role in shaping the way I look at like education, academia, but like, I don't know, it's all one thing. Yeah. And I, I, I feel the same way as like the physical, the lab work, the not sitting in the classroom part is, was the most important part. And to me, or being outside or doing the field work, you know, that stuff is what really got me excited about archaeology. It wasn't yeah. sitting in a, a lab, listening to someone lecture about Neanderthals, which are fascinating. But if you sit in a hot room mm-hmm. with like 600 or 200 other people, like it's impossible to actually get inspired and feel that inspiration for certain folks. I mean, certain people love, love that crap, you know, that's, yeah. and that's all to them. But I didn't really get the inspiration until I like physically touched 100%. 100%. the archaeology, the the bones, all of it is like, that was, that was super important yeah. uh, to me. Yeah. I don't know. I bet David is the same way. Oh yeah. Like I was a terrible student until I did my first, not field school, but like field season at Topper and like just being around other like like-minded college students that wanted to do that. And like, you're sitting outside around a fire drinking it's just like, it's what humans are supposed to do. And archaeology like really lends or like you can do that with archaeology while also getting a degree. And people are like, damn, that's a cool job. And I'm like, it's you just hang. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I agree. Did you feel like grad school was more like a place that you thrived more I mean, I because it was so. <laughs> but like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't. I, I really. I have really mixed feelings about Michigan. The state is fine. I don't have a problem with the state, but that program, it is like really a bubble. Like, um, I learned a whole, so maybe I'll first start off with like what I loved about that program. It's a four field program. So for those who don't know what that means, it's you learn cultural anthropology, you learn linguistics, you learn human evolution, biological anthropology, and you learn archeology. span And so like, Mm -hmm. Most of us on the bio and arc side, like our dissertations, our research are like so intertwined. Like, for example, a lot of my TAs, like from my early courses in grad school, they were archaeologists teaching human evolution classes. And that's really important. They're, you know, they're a year older than you, but they're, they're teaching you. They're like, they're really good at telling you like, okay, yeah, the human evolution stuff is fine. Environment is really important. Culture is really important. They create feedback loops and those feedback loops drive evolution. Evolution drives these feedback loops. And it's like, that's super important. And this isn't to say that's unique to a four-field program. But then going over to a linguistics class and, you know, seeing how much they actually know about cognitive biology and then going over to a cultural anthropology and seeing how much they know about medical anthropology. And like, those are all intertwined, which is one of the reasons why I really like teaching 101, for example. Because like these are 19-year-old students, 20-year-old students. Some of them are 40-year-old students, first year graduates, or first year undergrads, 40 years old. Mm-hmm. But like the way, like the way that you see people excited about anthropology and like realizing that like something from their anatomy physiology class ties in really well with their, their archaeology class, that's incredible. Like that is the coolest thing in the world. And like seeing the light bulb go off is like one of the most like gratifying experiences 
That's awesome. And so like, I was really, yeah, dude, I was really laissez-faire about like my grading. I don't think I ever failed anybody. I think I gave out like one D. <laughs> like, I don't, like, I don't. Probably deserved it. <laughs> no, and the thing is like a lot of these students like would come back and they'd be like, all right, what can I do to fix this? I'm like, write an huh? essay and they do it and they get a, they get a B. Like, sweet. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, the, and also because I was that student who like didn't do well. And so I'm like very yeah. sympathetic, but like majority of the time, like I think like my average for my sections each year was like over an 85, over a 90. Like it was insane because of how stoked these students were to be in a program like that. And like they're the undergrad program really, really empowers these students there. And it was like so cool to be like a TA or the instructor of record for undergrads at a program like Michigan. And uh, like that was super, that was worth it. That was worth everything. We will be right back. This is episode 114. You're about to listen to Chris Webster sell you something. Buy it, please. Yeah. Welcome back to episode 114 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are here with Vince, Vincent, Batista, the cool guy. We're very excited to have him on. He finished the last segment talking about what he enjoyed about the University of Michigan and the program as, as it is. We wanted to ask you, what were some things that you... Could, maybe you were like less excited about or you kind of had some issues with while you were there? Yeah. A couple the structure of courses was kind of tough. So like some of the courses that we had to take, we had like a, like a four hour, four hour long cultural anthropology class on Wednesday mornings, like at 8am until lunch or something like that. And that was tough. Cause like a lot of the students in the program were who were taking that class were like a little bit further on. They'd done so much more of the reading and like it was easier for them. Whereas like there was like six, six or seven bilingual or all archaic people like in that class that were first years. And like that was tough. Like it was it, the, the course was called Trads or Traditions of Ethnology. And I think it's an important class. You read Karl Marx. Like you read Charles Darwin. You also read, you know, like Wolf. foundational things ethnological research and so like that's cool because it's four field program whatever like, that class was brutal like <laughs> super super long graduate school classes are like not fun like not no. lives in that and then another thing was uh, the way prelims were set up it's brutal the way that these exams are not everybody can write well not everybody can write like 12 essays in a week and like have them be good and be able to defend it like that's tough Prelims for the audience is uh, the stuff you do right before you become a candidate, right? For your PhD. Yeah. It's so, like trials. Ours was like two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was like two parts. So like our first one was like, I think it was end of our first or second year. It's basically you do like a bunch of essays with a committee, which is like, it's supposed to get you able to write fast and all that stuff. And then the second part is you basically write an NSF and then like a grant. And then like you need to, propose a project and like defend that. And like that was helpful and that was cool. It was really tough, but like whatever. But just the way that that was like, it's tough because we had a really big cohort. There's like eight violent people, I think in my cohort. So like getting every, getting it such that like everybody's committee members would be around. It'd all be done at the same time. That was really tough. Mm-hmm. But also like, I just think that it's like not a good structure. Not a lot of people thrive in that sort of like environment. And like, that's like teaching is about my philosophy about teaching is like, it should be done in a way that empowers people, elevates people and like challenges them. But like, does it in a way that like they can approach it 
in a manner that helps them grow. And like, I don't feel like I really grew from that. Like I passed and I had to rewrite like all my essays. My grandmother yeah. died the next week. So I was like really not in a good place. And like, that was just what you had to do because like, you can't like stop. You can't like pause because they're all yeah. your cohorts doing it, you know? So like that. And then also it's so cold. Michigan is so freezing. Like my thin Mediterranean blood, like all the olive oil just like coagulated. And just, like, <laughs> wasn't really good. Wasn't really good at all. I watched a lot of hockey games. So that was good. But like hey. cold. It's like, I think I have like seasonal affective disorder. Genuinely. Like I just uh, like, it just like when you're in the lab all day or in class all day, you don't see the sun for like a week. You're just a pasty like shell like, of a human. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like a Pleistocene guy, like in the, you know, in between like glacial cycles. I got trapped <laughs> nice. in the Swabian Alps. I'm living in Vogel Herd Cave, just chewing on carcasses. <laughs> fermenting. Well, I guess, I guess that's why Oatsy was a little later, but maybe that's why he was like, yeah. I need to see the freaking sun. And he just went up into the mountains trying to get right. above the clouds and then he got popped. I don't think Oatsy's so. <laughs> First not movie. I see he got whacked, dude. He was whacked. Uh, Also, let me tell you something. (laughs) Look, we're going to take a long walk. We're going to go up the road south. We're going to have a picnic. Don't worry about bringing stuff. We got all the gabagool. <laughs> Yo, that's perfect. We need to make that a movie. Uh, also, oh, I was gonna say, oh, uh, <laughs> oh, which, okay. uh, which in Neapolitan means uncle. So, really, are you from Naples? Coincidence? Uh, my dad was from, was born in Gazeta, which is like in the mountains, like north of Naples. But it's uh, okay. All part of the same uh, kingdom of two Sicilies. Italy's got a lot of stuff going on at all times in history. Giuseppe Gobaldi. We'll, we'll talk about that in another episode, but um, yeah. Garibaldi. That was, Garibaldi. we're going to edit that out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was in Rome and the guy was like, that little cannon, like that's like to celebrate like Giuseppe Garibaldi. Like it's every day at noon. And I was like, wait, I know that. Oh, right. Italy had like 45 different like warring family states at some point. It's basically like, you know, Dude. Game of Thrones. Garibaldi lived on Staten Island as a candle maker. Did he? Dude was a candle maker. He was a right? Staten Island boy? Bro, I mean, we haven't left ever since. But <laughs> but here's what you don't know. is like Garibaldi was also involved in the American Civil War. I did not know that. Garibaldi, dude, Garibaldi like became super, super popular. He was involved in the American Civil War in like the Uruguayan like Civil War or something like that. But the dude, he's like a very complex figure because like when he went to Southern Italy... We're all like sick, like, you know, we're going to like no longer be like, you know, a part of the same empire as like Peru or whatever, going to be cool, whatever. And then we got completely screwed over, <laughs> like lost, like we had way less autonomy, got a language forced on us that wasn't ours. And like still, if you look at like pretty much any indicator for like development or health or whatever in, in Italy, North, Northern Italy and Southern Italy are basically two different countries. Southern Italy is basically like, not even in the same like northern Italy is like Europe <laughs> yeah right northern <laughs> Italy is Europe southern Italy is its own thing man and I love Mediterranean it. <laughs> yeah we're Mediterranean dude. we got like the best food and uh Napoli is excellent soccer team so yeah go uh oh who's uh, so yeah it, it is insane how how like uh prelims just are like there to like it's like this 
like ancient way to like screw people over and beat you down. Cause it's the way it's been is like why those yeah, things dude. exist. It's kind of the feeling I get. You're right. Connor. I had to do it. So you got to do it. Yeah. So, let's all suffer so. because we all suffered and you know, let's just keep beating that mental health down till it's like you know, ableist and like, and here's the thing is like, it's ableist like on its own. But like, I think about students who have children, think about mm-hmm. students who have English as a second language or like students that, you know, come from like, I'll be the first person to admit and acknowledge that like I have a mountain of privilege. Like that that is it full stop. There are no there are no conditionals attached to that. If I had this hard of a time doing it and like I have a lot more at my disposal, then like how else are other people doing? And like I have a lot of friends who do great. Take them out of the you know, they did a great job. They did a great job. But like I also have a lot of friends who had an equally terrible time. And this isn't like unique to Michigan. This is like the American graduate student experience you're right it's tough and like i had just like crippling anxiety and i will also admit like i'm also privileged growing up like with the family that i had and like it's hard still at that and like i know there's other students who have to work full time to do it and it's just like it's grueling and that does give me respect for people that have phds because it's like you went through the freaking ringer but also like it doesn't need to be that hard 100 I'm glad it's over with, so I'm going to say. <laughs> like I'm done. Well, let's uh, dig into then. In class, in biological anthropology class, we had uh, Jim Ahern, Dr. Jim Ahern. He went to Michigan as well. And side note, I want the audience to know, Michigan is like always has been and it still is like one of the top schools for anthropology. So like that's why it's also like such a challenge there and why like our professor went there and like the two guys are about to talk about and Vincent himself. But anyway, Jim Ahern, our our professor, had us do very interestingly, like our second week of class, our archaeological and anthropological pedigree and to trace back our teachers to Boaz. And like, it's pretty sick. We're like five degrees of separation away from Boaz in a lot of senses as a student. It's kind of like, you know, you could trace back to Musashi or like Yoda or something. Also, I think Boaz is canceled. But anyway, well, like like we figured out that like we're like a, a degree of separation from like Binford, right? We're one right. one Dude, step away Binford. from Binford. <laughs> Man, Binford, oh, what are you gonna do about? Binford? He's a wild child. Wild he is. Child. Was. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, go back. Yeah, so uh, the Benford thing, yeah, we can, we have to do a whole episode on Benford. I think Bob talked about it a bunch on his, but yeah, what struck me as cool was I really liked Jim's take on human evolution. I learned quite a bit. I also, that's the best grade on a paper I ever got, and I wrote it about dog domestication, and he was like, this is the shit. And just like the way he would explain biology and how it worked was awesome. But he learned that all from Milford Wolpoff. And he would be like, Wolpoff? Every day. Like we would drink every time he said it. That was awesome. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So like when you hit me up about that Neanderthal thing and you said you're a Wolpoff student, I was like immediately like, okay, I take this guy very seriously. And I, his information is probably more correct because you, you know, specifically study it. But like. It's weird because I, you know, he's got a pedigree. I should listen to him. It sounds kind of like, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm I'm like the inverse of that. So, like, I think I pretty much only said it because I was like, so if I, as I remember it, like you were talking about multi regionalism, right? And -hmm. I think the context was I was like, Milford himself told me this sort of thing. So it wasn't like I was trying to name drop, but I'm like, dang, like, this is from the source, like, 
no, not being filtered out through like Chris Stringer or like right. anybody else. Like this is like milk. What was your experience working with him? How? Oh, he's the man. He's great. I just went over to his house for lunch last month. He hosted me. <laughs> Rachel, he and Rachel, his wife, Rachel Gasperi, who's a professor at I think Central Michigan. Awesome. Like I aspire to be like them when I'm grown up. About to turn 31, yeah. but I'm not a grown up. <laughs> but Milford, you know, Milford, Milford's interesting because like, you know, he's a he's like gritty. Like, you know, he reminds me of my dad. Like people think he's like bellicose, but he's not. He's excited. People are like he's talking over me. I'm like, he's excited. He's excited. He loves teaching and he's excited and he's invested. Like he's not talking over you because he doesn't like first first of all, he's not talking over you. Second of all, he's excited. That's why he's loud and stuff. And like as you know, that's how I am too. And so like we mesh really well. And like he sometimes just like in class would like intentionally say things because he knew that I knew they were wrong. Right. Mm. So you like have some professors who were like do the Socratic thing. Like, oh, why do you think that is? And Milford would be like, What if I told you? This thing, which is egregiously incorrect and like factually can, you can demonstrably say it's not true. And you would do it anyways. And that's like a really important teaching technique, I think, for like people who learn like the way that I do. And uh, yeah, it was, it was awesome. And like, it's also worth mentioning I had Abby as my co advisor, and like they were a really good balance. And I, I really think like for people just about to get their PhD, get a co advisor. It like is so nice having like, like a balance. That's what I did. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's great. Milford was awesome. Yeah. And like, and like, he, like, he was a really good teacher. He was really tough, but I grew substantially because I had him as a professor. And I think he challenged me really in the right ways. And like also being able to teach for him for many years and like be his lab manager. It was great. Yeah. And like, you know, it was awesome. And like, the, he, like what people don't know about him, he was like one of the first biological anthropologists to like really use a computer for a dissertation. He took like all these measurements on thousands and thousands of teeth and then, like, on punch cards, put them through a computer and, like, did Damn. big data. It was, like, a big data project for the time. And, like, that's huge. And so, like, he's always been a really big advocate. One of, like, younger people. He's, like, younger people are probably right. Like, just listen to what young people have to say. And, two, he's been a huge advocate for, like, computational biology. Like, even without saying it, he's, like, you need to learn how to do statistical computing. And, do it. and like, that... Yeah. That is something that not like all I do now in my job in a clinical and translational epidemiology unit, nothing related to anthropology. All I do is computational biology because he recognized it as a worthy tool set. Like, look at the way that archaeology is going. Like, there are machine learning papers in archaeology. I would not have anticipated that 10 years ago. Some of them aren't good. A lot of them are incredible. So along that line, what I was getting at with the pedigree thing is like, not necessarily that it's like, oh, he descends from this person, therefore I should trust him. But like, Wolpoff taught my teacher and he has, like the way we view the world is very similar. And like, I like understanding that. And like once, like I knew you were a Wolpoff student, we were immediately friends, but also we were friends just because like, you know, we were talking and sending memes (laughs) and stuff and dogs. Yeah. But like, (laughs) it's just when you meet an anthropologist that thinks similarly and like you have the same lens of the world your conversations are like fire uh because you can just yeah it's just so awesome and like everything you just said like is like yeah it's like looking at the world through like a computational sense like why not look at it this way and like the way he's teaching and things and obviously i think 
Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, but I think it's also interesting when you run into people of the the either opposite school or different school, and you have those conversations as well. Because obviously, yeah, we are we are conditioned a little bit by our teachers and by who we study underneath. So we have this, like you said, this worldview. Yeah, and it's fun to ask what other people are viewing and how they're doing it, as long as it's done in like a respectful and like. Yeah good way i mean i think that's yeah. it's fun to do that sometimes to be like okay what just give me give me the speech give me the give me the elevator speech of like why you guys are correct on this topic right. etc yeah. i think that's yeah. and speaking of the elevator speech i would love to pick your brain and connor would too about uh neanderthals and everything you know about them in the next segment yeah. uh, he is currently yeah. beating his chest like a gorilla as if he's to say yeah i'm the guy for that <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll see you guys s- on the other side. Sub adult gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to episode 114 of a Life Nerds podcast. We're here with Vincent Batista, the man, the myth, the legend. Also here with Connor. You guys know Connor. I've already done this. Not, n- not so mythical, not so legendary. You know, I'm here. But he's here. So, Neanderthals. The war in Iraq. Like, let's let's pick Neanderthals first. Um, but <laughs> also, oh, yeah. question: Do you think? I got two questions: Are Neanderthals Homo sapiens, or are they Homo neanderthalensis? And then two: What's the deal with only having one string of DNA from Neanderthals? And then three: Was the sex consensual? Okay, let's do this. Again. <laughs> so, number one: Yeah, they're Homo sapiens. Like, there's probably more Neanderthal DNA walking around on this planet now than there ever was in the past. The fact of the matter is we not only mix with them, we mix with them every time we ran into them. All the genetics point to the fact that, first of all, not only have we mixed with them recursively, but other human populations like Denisovans have Neanderthal ancestry at the population level. So when you find like Denny, who was like the Neanderthal Denisovan hybrid, not a hybrid because it's the same species, one, two, the <laughs> Denisovan ancestry contained Neanderthal ancestry, and the Neanderthal ancestry, I'm pretty sure, also contained Denisovan ancestry. So it was like mixed on both sides. So essentially, what you're saying is like if somebody from like Western ish Eurasia and Central ish Eurasia mixed with one another, that's what Den- Denny, that Denisovan is. So, okay. yeah, we're the, they're the same species, we're the same species. We even find their ancestry in Africa. There are Neanderthal African components. Or Neanderthal ancestry components in Africa. And for a long time, we were like, oh, this is because of like gene flow within the last couple hundred years, which is like a good hypothesis, mm-hmm. right? But like they looked at these haplotypes and the haplotypes are way too old to be recent and they're found old. So like there's Neanderthal ancestry in Africa. We're the same species. You know, if we, if we adopted the position that we were the same and then used that as the null hypothesis, we wouldn't even have to have this conversation. But because we come from the position that human populations are different, we have to find evidence to support that we're different. And that's not the case. Like, we are different skeletally. Like, Neanderthals from, like, like the LaFerrisie Neanderthal. That's your idea of a stereotype Neanderthal. Of course they don't look the same as anybody else. The dude was like an old guy with, like, <laughs> bone degeneration. He's missing teeth. Of course he didn't look like it. It's like if you took your grandfather... Your great grandfather, right? You like took a cat skin of his skull and took a cat skin of a of, of a Maasai person, and you're like, oh yeah, they're different, different species. <laughs> like, yeah. No, no, not at all, dude. <laughs> like, it, you know, like my whole thing is like, 
because you cannot divorce anthropology from a, a, a colonial imperial past, we have to do so much work to like one, make sure that our research isn't like co-opted by white supremacists, but two, like we have to undo all the trash the that goal. happened in the past 200 years. Dude. And like, it's like so much more work. And then you have like very well-respected established archeologists, like and geneticists who like publish stuff. And I'm like, Oh my God, how do you have a job? dude? <laughs> how do you have a job? How do you have a job? <laughs> One geneticist who's like, you know, apparently thinks everybody, everybody thinks this guy where he walks, like tulips emerge from the earth or something. <laughs> this guy is like, you know, whatever. They did a paper and like the, the author in question was like, oh, it seems that like what we're showing is that like people who live in a place, they don't necessarily have ancestry from that place. And they were talking about like beaker culture migrations into England, right? And they're like, as we can see this bell beaker, like we see like a huge genomic replacement Right. And like, so like you see this huge amount of ancestry coming in from continental Europe into the UK. Mm -hmm. And like, oh, it's a replacement. It's like, no, 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 it's not a replacement. It's admixture. You have people who have a different subsistence method, different lifestyle. There was probably, you know, 90 of these agriculturalists for every 10 of these like Mesolithic people. Maybe it's not a surprise that 90% of their ancestry is from continental Europe with these agri agro-pastoralists and like 10% local ancestry. Like people don't weight these papers by population size or anything like that. So like when you look at Neanderthal ancestry, like if somebody has like, you know, a fraction of Neanderthal ancestry, like, oh, yeah, there was probably like two or three Neanderthals for every hundred Africans. So like maybe it's not a huge surprise that there's not that much Neanderthal ancestry at any point, not any population. But so like, ah, I can go on about this for hours. That's number one. Same species. Cool. What was number two? <laughs> so like I talked about this on TikTok. There's the idea that it's either only female Neanderthal genetics are what passed or that they were the only ones that were viable or it was only the males that were viable. I can't recall. Um, and there's the mule thing. So, yeah. So they're like, Oh, because there's no Neanderthal mitochondria, like no female natural lines from Neanderthals that survived. Fine. The, the problem with using uniparentally inherited markers is they don't mix, right? Like your mitochondrial, haplogroup is your mitochondrial haplogroup from your mom. That's going to go on forever, right? Your whole genome is what mixes, right? So these, like, you have these chromosomes and they, you know, do the thing. That was one of the reasons why, like, when the first ancient DNA papers came out, people were like, there's no genetic evidence for Neanderthal ancestry in living humans. It's like, yeah, because you looked at the mitochondria and those don't mix, <laughs> right? So, like, there could be some possible, like, biological incompatibilities, like, with pelvis as some people have thought whatever but chances are it's probably just that there's really strong selection of mitochondria like there are other you know there are non-human species where you have like admixture and you have like one of the mitochondrial haplogroups completely like going under selection and like completely replacing all the other mito, mito like for example there's like lake, lake trout or something like that these fish have like these arctic charge, like a really, really different species that they sometimes hybridize with. They have complete replacement in some of these populations, these lakes in like remote northern Canada. And like 
mitochondria are super important. Like that's the powerhouse of the cell, man. Like yeah. how can you survive? <laughs> right? Like <laughs> imagine trying to imagine if you have a Ford F-150 and you swap it out with like a, like an I-4 engine. Like that's not going to last that long, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a little sedan. Right. I mean, like maybe if it was like a Supra engine or something cool like that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I never thought about this till right now, but like with the new world dogs being completely replaced by Western, you know, European yeah, dogs coming over. It's like the, it's detection limits. It's all about detection limits. Okay. So you think there is still a little bit of DNA there? Like well, in some dogs. So like you look at like Asian dogs, right? Like uh-huh. the Asian dog, paleo, like oh, ancient dogs from Asia, right? Like that, there's probably multiple dog domestication events in Asia and all this other right. stuff. But like, dogs are so closely related to one another. It's really, really tough to do that at the whole. I, I really think it might just be because, you know, well, at the same time, like it could very well be the case that like dogs, you know, because of disease or something like that, maybe they were replaced. Who knows, man? But it's probably the case that they just mixed and there's selection. But Okay, because where I was going with that is like, if people don't understand like how Neanderthal, like you're still part Neanderthal, you know, with two percent DNA, whatever, like it's the same thing. Those dogs were dogs, and they had sex with American dogs, and like now mm-hmm. that's just more European DNA than it is yeah. Indian DNA. So it's the yeah. same thing with humans and Neanderthals, at least to my yeah. So I mean, like, look how many, look how many, like like cholos and like chihuahuas and all those those are those are native american dogs like whether we want to admit or not there's huge amounts of gene flow but they're native american dogs what's interesting to me though is in chile in argentina it looks like they possibly also domesticated foxes yeah uh raven garvey was trying to get me to work with that is that a good or bad face it's a face raven (laughs) that would have just been such a cool project no because they did it there was a taxidermy project where somebody found like one of these taxidermy like Fuegian dogs and they yeah. sequenced the mitogenome of it and they're like dude this thing's a fox <laughs> they're like it's a fox bro damn because yeah. yeah it's like I get people ask of it like people always comment about the Fuegian dogs and stuff on my Instagram like hey do a thing on it and I'm like I would love to but I want to actually go see one first yeah my original PhD project was supposed to be a Tierra Fuego in my games and uh going doing what there, man. I wanted to do cold climate adaptation down there, but it was just like political instability, funding, different field seasons. Like um, it was really tough. And then also, oh right, yeah, I think there's something to be said about letting communities come to you, sort of deal. Like I didn't like the, it takes a lot of rapport building to do it properly, and um, especially uh, when you're doing like biological stuff where you're actually yeah, like measuring yeah. them. They're, they're persons and you know yeah. also you should be respectful of their heritage too but if you're measuring their physical persons like you have to yeah. be you have to be on a certain level where you're like okay we're cool yeah. i can measure you this is this is cool <laughs> yeah i mean i think i was just gonna do like a snip chip but like at the same time for good reason there's a healthy distrust of biological anthropology was the scientific arm of colonialism we need to have something to address 100 like um like Here's an example. I was photographing some crania for like a like a side project, and I was working with skulls from southern Italy. And like these are my ancestors, right? They're like from a mile away from my father's. I pick them up, and a bunch of fava beans fall out of their head. And I'm like, oh, 
why are these people measuring endocrinian volume? Oh, they're trying to tell us why we're racially like bad and like not smart. They're doing, they're trying to tell us, you're going to compare the size of our brains to the size of brains of people in Northern Europe, aren't they? In low middle, oh. that's exactly what they did. So like, and like, that's like a low, like, you know, like I, whatever, like that's that. Now, now amplify that discomfort by 10,000 and be like, okay, anthropologists took your family away. Right. Like you can't do that. I refuse to do that. And like you Part of learning how to be a good scientist is learning how to develop a healthy, culturally and ethically sustainable research ethic or research-like approach. And like, not a lot of people do this. Is um, do you guys have you guys spoken to Caleb Fox at all? Mm-mm. He's my buddy. He's a professor at UCSD. He's um, he's native Hawaiian, Konkama Ali. He's like a killer scientist, exceptional scientist, like one of the best geneticists I've met. And uh, the guy can, the guy, you should have him on. He's great. He's like a geneticist. Okay. He also was trained as an archaeologist too. I'm pretty sure he went to Maryland for his undergrad or something like that. But Send us his digits. I will. Yeah. No, like, he, you know, he was like having him sort of as like a side mentor was really important because like, you know, I approached him with these problems. I'm like, dude, like I can't, I don't feel comfortable. He's like, then don't do it, dude. Like use your intuition. If you don't feel comfortable doing something, don't do it. Like, you know why you don't feel comfortable. Don't do it. And, like not everybody has that. The amount of people I know who are like pressured into doing projects that they're not comfortable with is too damn high. Hmm. So and that's that. That yeah. gets back into that whole uh, academia being toxic kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. On many, on many friends. Anyways, yeah. So um, Neanderthals, and then well, I know number three. You asked if it was consensual. Probably was, dude. When, oh, it was Henry. Henry Wright came up to me and was like. Um, I have a hypothesis for why red hair exists. And I was like, let's hear it. He's like, well, it started when man went to Europe from Africa and a man saw a redheaded Neanderthal and said, wow, that's a (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that actually the genetic case? (laughs) No, I don't think, I don't think those, I don't, I don't really know, man. That's like, you. the good thing about science is that you have to prove stuff. Yeah. Because yeah. I'd heard that red hair is a Neanderthal remnant trait, but I don't know it if that's true. Or Here's the thing about Neanderthals, man. Neanderthals lived from North Africa to England to Siberia mm. for probably twice as long as we Homo sapiens have been alive. Okay, the big thing about Neanderthals is we like have them fixed at one point in time. Sure, like, and like, and that to me is like a form of of racism. Like we have them fixed in their ability, fixed in their capacity, fixed in their behavior, fixed in their appearance. And like, that's racist right there, straight up. Like there's no other, like that, like if you did that, if you applied that to any other human population today. Oh my God. We would recognize it for what it is. And that's racism. I'm on notice. I never thought about that. (laughs) Yeah. So like that is one. So like I had a colleague who was like, Neanderthals didn't do that. And I was like, which Neanderthals? Which Neanderthals? Like, I was, and, she, and then, you know, this colleague was like, sure, yeah. Okay, well, we're different species than them. I'm like, well, what do you mean we're different species than them? And this person was like, oh, well, like, you know, we didn't mix with them. Like, yo, we mixed with them very extensively. And the person was like, oh, well, like, we have different ecology than them. Like, what do you mean we? 
what do you mean ecology? What do you mean by their ecology? You tell me that somebody Damn. from Siberia has the same ecology as somebody from <laughs> Mount Carmel in Israel or from like England or from Iberia? No, ah. no. And then on, the, on top of it, on top of it, like people are now, here's one thing that's weird. It's like we now know that like Neanderthals, like any other human group, had variation genetically. You know, that they ate different things depending on where they live. You know, they look different depending on where they live. This is like, like blowing people's minds. This is blowing yeah. their mind. And like in the same people who have their mind blown by that have their mind blown by the fact that like Mesolithic humans in Europe had dark skin. They're like, yeah. Oh, the first people <laughs> in were black. It's like, dude, take a chill, bro. Chill, man. Yeah, it's that it's a crazy history of like Neanderthals where we just we 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 put them as this caricature and then we never took them out of that box and we refused to take them out of that box. Dude, if you went to the Neander Valley like forty thousand years ago and you found one of these guys and you asked him how we identified, he'd say Johnny he Danger. She, yeah, he'd say Johnny Danger. No, he'd be like, he'd be like, he'd probably say something along the lines of like, I'm one of the people. Right? Sure. And then you could find a person that we would call a Neanderthal from the opposite side of the range at that point in time. And you put them face to face, and he's gonna be like, he's not one of the people. He doesn't speak the same language as me. He smells funny. He eats different food than me. He has different body adornments than me. He likes turtles. Why are you he likes turtles? Right. <laughs> so like also like we like Neanderthals in some regards are a social construct. So, so we're Denisovans. We don't even know what Denisovans are. Like, we probably have Denisova like crania sitting on shelves and we're calling them like Chinese homo erectus or something like that. Sure. So like we just like apply these things and like expect everybody to jump on board. But like critically, like if we if we take a step back, if we there's a paper written by um by Sheila Athrea, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but she she did a paper with a co-author talking about human evolution, like viewed from outside a Eurocentric sphere and Akron is the other author. That this sounds like a really fascinating the, read. Dude, it is one of the best papers I've ever read. And they're like, not only is like, like the papers, like listen to authors from China. Like you can't just write off everything that Chinese authors are saying because you think it's nationalism because what you're doing is also nationalism. But like, like take into consideration the fact that like these people are identifying the fact that there are morphological traits in humans in China two hundred thousand years ago that you find in humans in China today. Right. That's not them saying the Chinese nation has been here for two hundred thousand years. This is saying there's regional continuity, and that's okay. That's okay. Like just get over it. That's the big yeah. problem. Okay. That's fascinating, dude. Uh, we got to wrap up here, but I just want to qualify before I get arrested. When I said it wasn't consensual, I was more asking, I think you and I had this talk when I helped, you had me help, you helped me with the Neanderthal post that I did. And it's more likely because I get so many comments saying that we would have just fought each other or like beat the shit out of each other. And like, it's probably more the case of just like, like you're saying, like they just looked like a person. And they were like, let's bang. Because like they were trying to trade no, stone. Or trade that, to- well, <laughs> <laughs> well right. you know, like it's, it's more likely that you're going to interact positively with a new group of humans than you would negatively. Who knows? You know, maybe not. But like it doesn't necessarily, so there's literally zero evidence for physical violence between the and people. Yeah. The, the amount of evidence is zero. It's an assumption. 
And I think part of it is you see these like uncontacted tribes of the Amazon and all that other stuff, which is like a whole different thing to unpackage because like they have like they weren't Nikes, dude. Like they're not uncontacted. They're uncontacted by white people, dude. Like yeah, they're uncontacted by Oxford. Not <laughs> that's right? a really good point yeah right so like yeah. like yeah like like yeah the like i'll take i'll take a step back yeah so my dog anatolian shepherd right these dogs have been around for, for thousands of years and they're bred to protect livestock against predation there's this misconception that these dogs like go seek out wolves and kill them it's not what they do when they see a wolf or a coyote, this happened to my dog. There's a coyote, coyote in the neighborhood last year. Yeah, you told me this, yeah. Man, my dog bluff charged him. Okay. He made himself look big. He's like, yo, how you doing? Get out of my neighborhood. Okay. <laughs> he popped himself up, put his hackles up, barked, and like, he was like, get out of here. Right? And that was it. That's all he had to do. It was a nonviolent encounter. And that's what they're bred to do. They're bred to like minimize risk and like get rid of a threat. That's probably not dissimilar from what humans did 40,000 years ago. It's like, yo, if you're not here like, to trade or whatever, get out of here, dude. And that was probably the majority of the interaction. That was probably it. Probably it took 30 seconds. You go home like, yo, Grog, <laughs> you're not going to believe what I just saw. This dude was like 6'3 and like beautiful. He had Austin. And uh, <laughs> let me tell you, he was just wearing stuff like all over. He had like red and like yellow. It was cool. Anyways, I told him to run away and uh, stay woke for a little bit. Okay, but that's yeah, <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Vincent, for having uh, coming on. Do you have any social media or Twitter you want to plug? Yeah, people you can follow, follow you at, uh, at Spaghetti Westerns with a Z because you know I'm predictable. <laughs> and you started off the episode with the can of uh and what was it what was yeah, the name of the beer um the name of the beer is uh gold. of gold from widowmaker brewery here in quincy mass right down the street nice and uh, oh they're in brain street brain street mass sorry yeah in but, addition uh, to breweries do you have any citations or books or papers that you would recommend people read no <laughs> of mine or other people's just like um, to get into neanderthals or you know genetics no, not or neanderthals but you Italy. need to read braiding sweetgrass by robin mulkinmer and you need sure. to read dark emu by bruce pasco and then we can talk about this critically if you want. <laughs> okay man i gotta think of a skit now where he's like yo i got a good flint guy <laughs> look, look. You know, we tend to care more about the haft than the flint. Okay, <laughs> flints, but a nice haft, a little bit of bitumen, you need that anaerobic environment. Ooh, mama mia, that's great stuff. My cousin Mikey uh, using this at lateral. These guys over here, they've been using the freaking bow. Can I asked ask you, Arkell, I know you're probably going to cut this off. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, yeah, we just interviewed Vince Batista. You can find him at The Things in The Thing. Rate review the podcast. We'll give you things. <laughs> and with that, we are out. Rate the podcast. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. All right, since Carlton's not here to introduce this, this is shitty joke time. 
So I, I heard this recently. Uh, there's a guy going around at the moment, like dipping his testicles in glitter. It's pretty nuts. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's like a Kesha concert with one joke right there. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good reference. <laughs> All right. On that note, guys, we're out. Uh, maybe I'll be here next week. Maybe I won't. Bye. <laughs> This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.